into a new decade. Um, always feels kind of slightly weird to say that, but Happy New Year to everybody who is joining us. It feels great to get going with our first Connectal webcast of 2020 on collective intelligence and leadership. So for those of you who are new to Connectal, who haven't been here before, um, please do go and explore the platform. Connectal is a platform for conversations, for um, uh, groups to gather and explore uh, questions about the future, like regenerative economy, which is my channel, like the future of work. There are many different channels to explore, so do go um, and uh, have a look around after the webinar. Um, but today we are going to be talking about collective intelligence and collective leadership with my guests who I'm going to ask to introduce themselves in a minute. Um, so collective intelligence and leadership, um, why did I pick this as our kickoff subject for 2020? Um, really for a couple of reasons. Um, it's a very, very complicated and complex world out there with an enormous amount of uh, very complex challenges that we face, not least, um, I'm sure all of us hold in our minds what's going on in Australia at the moment. It's um, been certainly massively affecting for me. So our wicked problems include climate change, biodiversity loss, soil health collapse, ocean acidification. And these kind of complex challenges are not challenges that we are going to be able to solve alone, not alone as individual people, um, not alone as individual companies, not alone as individual nations um, at, at all. And I think collective intelligence might, and collective leadership might offer us a way through these times of complexity um, or, or be a tool or a way in which we can do things differently and approach things in a completely different way. So that's kind of the basis for our, our subject today. Um, I'm going to ask my guests, Charles and Jack, um, to introduce themselves and give a little bit of their background um, and their idea really of, you know, what is collective intelligence and leadership and why is it important right now? And we're just gonna have a conversation today, see where that goes, explore um, this as an inquiry, um, how can collective intelligence and leadership help us through these, these wicked problems? So Jack, um, I'm gonna come first to you um, and ask you to introduce yourself um, and say yeah. hello. <clears throat> Hi everyone, um, I'm on the call on the webinar today, um, based in London, I'm originally from Singapore. Um, just a little bit about myself, I, I kind of, I think I want to first put out a disclaimer, I, I feel like I, I'm not sure if I can call myself a leader who is, who is actively, you know, who is certainly not an expert in collective leadership, I, I feel like I'm very much on a learning journey myself, aspiring um, and, and, and trying to practice in, in small ways, hopefully, which will add up into something bigger. Um, a little bit about me, I'm, I'm trained as a social worker. Uh, I spent the first 
part of my career, almost about 10 years in the Singapore civil service, working with young offenders and then on a whole range of social policy issues. I then had a little bit of a quarter life crisis and thought, hmm, I wonder what the business world has to say about, about some of these, you know, societal challenges and went on to do an MBA and, and then thereafter worked in an organization called Boland where we essentially tried to build bridges between business and, and all sorts of other actors, including social entrepreneurs, trying to, to, to build change together. Um, that was all really interesting, but I think I got to a point where I, I started to question, well, who am I really to, to be active in this, in this system of trying to create change? Um, and it was a, a really big fundamental question of, do I have the right to, you know, what is my right to, to be active in this system? What is my, what is my voice in this system saying? Um, and I think, you know, for, for those of us who have been, you know, active in the sustainability industry, it just, it, as with many other industries, you, you have knowledge bases, you have, you have, you have practice that then gets embedded and, and it's, it's easy to, to kind of slip into a, I, well, for me, at least experience was finding it easy to, you know, slip into a, a being where I found myself doing a lot of reading, studying, trying to keep up with the latest. This is how we, 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 we might be able to solve X and Y. And then when I turned the spotlight back onto myself, it, 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 there was a lot of dissonance. It was, why me again? And, 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 and what is my experience in trying to make that change? And I think that was a big question I, I, I then held and, and that really very much summarized, you know, what my year last year looked like and hopefully going forward as well um, to embark on this journey of trying to learn, trying to appreciate not just how systems change happens um, in, in a technical way, but to, to come at it from, from, from the hu a human individual perspective. And, and at the moment, I'm spending a lot of my time journeying with She Leads Change. And part of the introduction is maybe the, you know, just very quickly say, in my view, collective leadership is, is it has to, you know, it, you know one, of my, one of my colleagues at She Leads Change was quite bothered when we were coming up with this collective impact program, which I will share more about in a, later on in the call. But her reflection was, well, collective leadership, you know, brings up this notion of almost going back to communist times, this idea of, of one leader, um, you know, saying this is what our society is like and we will all follow, we will all follow the script and, and follow on like robots. Um, and that was her kind of immediate aversion to the term collective leadership. Uh, and, and, and to me, that's an interesting view because part of my learning this year and, and my perspective on what collective leadership really is, yes, it's, it's, it, there is the piece of the collective, but I think that's about the action, about lots of different individuals having the agency to step into a space where they're able to act to 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 do something to say something to 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 be something and it's the collective notion of lots of different individual actions um 
sometimes coordinated, other times patterned, simply because of, of other circumstances in, a, in some sort of a common direction, but not necessarily a, a kind of a copycat. And that's, maybe I'm, I'm just going to stop there, but I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit more as we go along. <laughs> okay, cool. Charles. Yeah, uh, I was, as Jenny, uh, sorry, as Jack was talking, I was just thinking, um, you know, the, the biggest barrier to leading effectively in this day and age is probably to think that you know something, uh, sort of think that you've got the answers. Uh, and I guess that's kind of how I see my life, uh, that I went through a very fancy, expensive education uh, and since so included, you know, uh, undergraduate at Oxford, time at Harvard, um, qualified as a chartered accountant, which, you know, is a kind of very um, structured, regimented way of looking at, uh, you know, how money is made and, and, and works in, in, in organizations and companies. Ever since then, I think it's really been about an unlearning process. Uh, so I think, you know, one feature of effective leadership uh, nowadays is actually to let go of the idea that you know anything um, and, the, and the more that you can let go of that idea that you know something then the more open you are to learning something new um, for those of me those of you who know me from Facebook um, I'm sort of somewhat uh, notorious for asking lots of questions and that's kind of becomes my default way of solving problems if our, people ask me things rather than kind of go to like a reflex response, which is to think I've got the answer. Normally I just throw the question out there. So I, I do this in a, you know, I do it on Facebook. I do it in other places. I do it in a kind of my master's alumni program mailing list. I do it with colleagues. I do it when I run groups is actually to throw it open. Uh, and the idea that, that any human being can really know anything um, is, is a sort of some sort of, um, uh, ultimately a delusion particularly in a world that is so complex there's so much knowledge it's so interconnected and we have such profound uh, issues and problems uh, I think really opening yourself up to different perspectives diversity of perspectives uh, on, on you know figuring out what even the problem is but I think we have you know enormous challenges in actually uh, making an impact nevertheless because of entrenched worldviews that people think they know how the world works uh, and then entrenched entrenched institutional dynamics that um, even if you even if you understand the nature of the problem the ability to do anything about it is significantly constrained typically by institutional dynamics which is that the institution you're in is normally uh, not very available for doing anything radically difficult, uh, different because it's been set up to operate in a certain way or the system you work within likewise is set up to work according to a particular formula. So you know, I'm currently working at the UN uh, United Nations Development Programme where we're trying to change global food and land use, um, well, uh, particularly focused on agricultural commodities and it's amazing to have a job remit which is basically systems change that's what i'm hired to do and yet the institutional mechanisms and the funding mechanisms and the way projects are run and all the structures around me um, you know put huge obstacles in your way to doing that because they want you to basically assess design implement monitor 
uh, in terms of what the problem is, what, you, what your intervention is going to yeah. be, what you're going to do for the next five years, which is very Soviet, uh, and then sort of, and what your outcomes are going to be, and have that all done from the beginning, which anybody that knows anything about systems change, and I can see there's a few of you on this call, know that that is kind of antithetical to actually working systemically. Yeah. So, so you know, in listening to what you're both saying there, my sense is that 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 you know the 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 kind of term collective intelligence or or leadership is a you know is a way a pathway perhaps to you know away from the systems that have worked for 20th century dynamics you know we're talking about education there even if you you know think of how education is designed it was designed for 20th century dynamics not the level of complexity and change that we have now. So, you know, it is not able to respond to the existing circumstances that we have, but, but co collective leadership and just people coming together in groups to explore and make sense is of things that we don't understand and acknowledge that we don't know the solutions to is in a way an emergent a, a, an emergent pathway of dialogue to help us get through the, the, the fog that's around us now about how, um, how society, how business, how the systems that we have in existence are going to change and emerge into a future that we can't know. So in a way, it's a, it feels like a process of inquiry, if that makes sense. So it, a process of inquiry to make sense of what we can't make sense of in a post-truth world, perhaps. It's for me, and I, I can't speak to how McKinsey operate now, so I apologize if I'm going to slur their current working practices because I know McKinsey, they're probably so very much up. They're, 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 probably, uh, they're probably working very differently. But when I spent a number of years working with a, a, a former McKinsey partner, it's very it's a very analytical mindset it's based on the assumption that you hire very very smart people who can analyze problems figure out what the problem is and design interventions and then go and implement them uh, yeah. and i think you know the software industry was the most famous for blowing that apart by moving into uh, agile production techniques yeah. and and i think you know that's definitely been cracked within within sort of software development a lot of other people talk about agile as a way of running organizations, uh, but often they don't know what they're talking about or they, they actually implement it very poorly. And when you're trying to do agile with multi, multi, multiple stakeholders and with funders who want to know what they're going to get from the, for their money. So when you're looking at big issues like climate change or you know, changing food systems, typically the people giving their money aren't prepared to give it into a process and hope for the best. They want to know what's going to come out of it at the end, and that kind of forces you into this uh, kind of assess, design, implement, monitor mentality, which immediately basically sets you up for failure. Yeah. Mm. So, 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 how does that? How do we change that? Because if you know, it's kind of like old Bucky Fuller said: if you, you know, you can't change something, you can't change a system by using the processes that created the system in the first place you've just got to create something new but but how how do we you know how do we get 
people, um, so investors, say, for example, who take that approach, who want a certain outcome, who want metrics, um, who want uh, progress uh, reports and statements, how do we move them into a more emergent way of allowing the future to emerge through the, you know, the collective intelligence that, 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 that can come together and create a new solution? How, how do we do that? I'm, I'm, I kind of recently heard a couple of brilliant examples, including at Ashoka, also the Lankley Chase Foundation here in the UK, who are again doing amazing work uh, in the system space. But thinking about how, how do you fund systems change? And I think, you know, there isn't any easy way. And I, I don't think either of those two organizations have necessarily cracked it, but they're definitely kind of exploring it. Um, and, and one of the things I'm seeing is, you know, I think a willingness to at least break down the silo of, you know, the typical model of, you know, an initiative pulling together a proposal, pull a set of metrics, and then the interface is literally that document of what those metrics are between the, the funders and, and whoever it might be running the initiative. And, and I think it comes back to, again, if we're trying to create systems change, then the funders need to be totally present in the system or systems that are that that they want to be a part of changing and 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 to simply throw in the money isn't necessarily the immersive type of being in the system that i think is needed for collective intelligence to emerge and and collective leadership and and so we all need to be present in the systems you know i, I don't think there are any shortcuts there and and being present in the systems to have the conversations, to, to be part of, of the dialogue uh, and, and to evolve, to be able to evolve the thinking, to see what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to educate um, the, kind of, sort of the, the, the organizations we're trying to work with or the decision makers in those organizations that we're trying to work with. Uh, and, and a good way of doing that is, is by highlighting uh, existing examples where people are working with much more collective leadership, collective intelligence and, and, and uh, systemic approaches. Uh, Jack mentioned uh, Lankley Chase and there are a few other foundations mm -hmm. doing that sort of thing. You know, there are some corporates that are, that are super smart on this stuff, um, or at least little parts of them. Maybe it's coming out of the innovation unit. Uh, you know, maybe it's a very good sustainability team, for example, or maybe it's coming out of, uh, you know, the, the leadership development side of the organization. Um, there aren't, I mean, there aren't many where it's become, it's become the norm across the entire culture. Mm. Um, but yeah, pointing to those examples of good practice and then figuring out how we scale it. Uh, but as the, as the kind of uh, cascading crises accelerate, uh, and I just thought the beginning of this year is, is or this decade sort of has begun very fittingly, uh, you know, these ca catastrophes are just going to keep on hitting us and hitting us. Mm. And this is 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 going to open up people. Um, I mean, partly it's going to it's going to make people very desperate. It's going to open up people and realize that we need to think differently. I mean, my frustration at the moment is I'm in the middle of a of a negotiation on a on a 450 million dollar uh, major program on food and food and land use change that's going to run for the next sort of six or seven years, coming out of the global environment facility, and I can just see us, you know 
being stuck in, in, a, in an outdated process that's going to keep us, you know, for the next six or seven years doing something that I believe is, is, is going to be suboptimal. So at that level, there are some big global funders, um, you know, who, who, are, who are funding to the tune of billions and billions every year. And it's really urgent that we um, get them on board with this. Uh, but if you think like somewhere like DFID, um, you know, who, who is one of those funders, DFID itself already has parts of the organization that are very good at this stuff, are very systemic, have, have driven a lot of innovation around systems thinking, systems change. So it's about finding the existing examples of good practice and the allies within the system that you can kind of team up with uh, and, and think about how we change the overall thing. You know, and just like we're kind of exploring in this conversation here, it's it's very, uh, it, my experience is that it's very dialogic, you know, dialogue face. But even, you know, that kind of Margaret Mead, a conversation as the smallest unit of change is is almost being like water through the cracks and looking for the opportunities to have explorative conversations that don't have an end goal um, in, in sight. So I don't know if you, you know, have you found that in the programs that you've designed at She Leads Change? Is that a, you know, Charles also, I know you, you know, you have uh, done a lot of Bohmian dialogue with Connected Conversations and I, you know, my, my, my core feeling is that there is this a period that we need to go through which whilst we need desperately to take action is almost about taking action on dialogue and conversation to try and shift the way people think and act. Mm, um, certainly at She Leads Change it's it's it I mean certainly even for me you know when I first encountered She Leads Change in a deeper way at the start of last year I mean it was a bit of a it was a bit of a shock, you know, coming as someone who was before that a consultant has things I had the answers um, to kind of break mold and say, actually, just listen. You don't even have to respond. You don't even have to nod. You don't even have to assure. Your job is just to listen. And and that was the task given to me um, as a facilitator in 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 some of some of the sessions we were running, and that that was quite difficult to do. But um, but you know, and in a way, coming back to 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 collective leadership, it's there's there's no end. You know, there's there is a kind of a view in sight of of what we're working towards, but as someone trying to practice it myself, there is no end to, to the learning uh, and, and, and the being conscious of, of how am I being in this certain scenario? Am I really listening? Am I listening what I want to hear? Or, or am I really listening to, to what's waiting to emerge? Um, and likewise, if I flip it the other way around, for the person who is going through you know, a situation uh, seeking some kind of solution, some kind of answer for them to, 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 to talk and then for them to be able to listen to themselves because um, they didn't have a consultant <laughs> jumping in and telling them what the solution is and fixing them. 
as the person sharing and I, I think this is also true if I scale it up to to you know not so much personal challenges but bigger societal or organizational challenges there is intelligence inherent in the system you know in the individuals that are that make up the system you know how how can we break the mold of trying to do the usual problem solve of you know as you were saying Charles getting a couple of experts in with a couple of bar charts and PowerPoint presentations which is one way of, of getting to some of the answers but actually answers are already inherent there is intelligence in, in in all of us if only we also allow ourselves to to listen to ourselves what does that space look like for dialogue that it's kind of two-way but also a, almost an internal dialogue and and the almost different mm -hmm. levels of dialogue to happen at once it's quite hard to put into words um we certainly don't do it perfectly yet at she Deeds change but definitely that is very much the intention to give that kind of space and to create a container for, for, for that sort of dialogue to happen. I think I, as I think Jack's talking, really sorry, sorry, carry on. <laughs> I was going to say, as Jack was talking, you know, it strikes me that you need leaders who, who've sort of done the work to use a bit of a sort of a bit of jargon because you need a level of uh, emotional maturity. You need uh, humility, uh, you need to to be open to not knowing the answers. You need to be open to hearing answers from from anywhere they might come from. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm super lucky to work in a team where we we have a guy. I mean, you should come to our annual strategy sessions. Basically, um, we have a very very smart group of people. A lot of them very senior and uh, totally uh, unafraid of voicing their opinions, however sort of contrarian they might be. And like the whole week, we have this sort of massive unpacking of everything we do, these huge, this huge critique. And the guy that leads the team, uh, he, he just basically sits back and spends virtually the entire week listening, even though the, there's a lot of implicit criticism of the way we're doing things, which ultimately he's responsible for. And actually to be able to be the sort of individual that can uh, put down your defenses, don't feel that you need to defend, defend, defend the whole time, open up, listen, learn. Uh, and the more that everybody in a team is doing that collectively, then, you know, you can, I mean, the, the classic term is psychological safety. Uh, you know, you have teams with psychological safety, everybody is learning, learning much more, far, much more quickly and the team itself can evolve and be much more effective. And, and how do you think that our current sort of increasingly polarizing environment and polarized environment makes it does it make it well it does make it more difficult for collective intelligence to emerge because it makes it more difficult for psychological safety to happen if you don't know what's true or if you don't know not to, that's a bit of a difficult phrase but uh, if if when you pick up an average news bulletin, you can look at it and think, I have no idea what's going on here, but I have a general sense that what's being presented to me, none of it is true, or I'm not getting the whole story. Um, whether that's when you're looking at the news or whether it's when you're working inside an organization, the current, it, the, the increasingly polarized environment, and, and certainly I'm kind of going off on a tangent here now, but 
the experience of what happened in the UK election in, in December, um, you know, where the outcome was, you know, and, and even in what is happening in, happened in the US, where the, the outcome is a, feels like an enormous leap backwards to, towards the system that has got us to where we are now, is how do we, how do leaders or how does any individual continue to activate and pull through that opportunity for psychological safety, collective intelligence and dialogue in that kind of environment? Or am I being I too mean, I, I've, I've got a comment, which is, you know, we have a system that rewards, um, you know, wounded and dysfunctional people. So we, we have us, we have a dysfunctional system that allows dysfunctional people to rise to the top of it, whether that's uh, yeah. CEOs or politicians. Yeah. And that's because of, you know, the fundamental design flaws within the system that we have. Unfortunately, if you're not one of those individuals, if you're a, a sort of more developed, emotionally mature, intelligent individual, the system isn't necessarily going to reward that. Uh, it, it may or may not do. But often, if you look at you know the leadership um, leadership maturity framework that um, I think Hart Hill developed, a lot of later stage development leaders end up leaving organisations because the organisations themselves are so dysfunctional that if you're more developed, you can't tolerate that level of dysfunction. But um, you know, so we're in a system that's in a, that is in a collapsed scenario. We're kind of yeah. breaking breaking the system itself is breaking down institutions are going to be breaking down and that's you know what i realized a long time ago is that breakdown and breakthrough are not separate they are the same process so if you're a leader that wants to lead us into the sort of a, a more rosy future hopefully you're sitting on the breakthrough side of the spectrum but you're sitting alongside things that are breaking down and that again goes to the kind of emotional maturity that you need to be able to deal with not only complexity, uh, but now increasing amounts of chaos. And, and that, you know, that'll point to things like emotional resilience, uh, being able to take knockbacks, um, being able to bounce back, etc. Hmm. I'm, I'm also seeing that you know, Charles, you were talking about sort of leaders at the top and, and definitely there's so much dysfunction that happens there. Um, the leaders that we encounter actually leads change. I mean, I guess not all of them would necessarily think of themselves, you know, the women who come through our programs, not necessarily all of them would immediately put up their head and say, yeah, I'm a leader. I'm kind of heading up this or I'm leading that. Uh, perhaps it's a function of kind of just just how women might be and 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 sort of seeing themselves as part of of a wider collective in any case but i think i i i recognize through the work we've been doing at she leads change just how powerful it can be when individuals no matter where they sit in a system or in an organization mm -hmm. be it at the top someone even fairly low at the bottom what leadership looks like, regardless of, of any of those levels. Um, and again, you know, for me, it comes back to one of those inherent truths of, of systems work, which is that there is, you know, that all voices are valid in the system, you know, they were all, we're all right, but only partially. 
how can we give agency to, to not just leaders in the traditional sense, leading at the top of the organizations to, to become better leaders and, and so much work needs to continue to happen at that level. But how can we democratize leadership, I suppose? And I guess that really flows well with, in a way, what we're talking about here, collective intelligence. How do we activate collective leadership, leadership from many different levels, different, you know, outside in, inside out, top down, bottom up. Um, how we coordinate that, I've got no idea. All I know is that that diversity is, is, is probably, and I'm pretty sure, really critical going forward. Yeah, yeah I mean, and that's I, I something that... that Sorry. Sorry, Sorry carry on, that, That's something I'm very interested in. I mean, that's what the programs like She Needs Change effectively are clearly helping to do. And I do a lot of that myself in terms of convening what I refer to as leaders and pioneers of change. Uh, and my definition of leadership it doesn't have much to do with the role that you're sitting in. It's much, it's much more to do with people with a sense of agency, basically. People yeah. with a sense of agency are going to do something, and I don't care where they're sitting they could be you know the newest graduate recruit uh, and a lot of people in so-called leadership positions uh, are not leaders they're simply managing that's just managing an existing or, uh, sort of uh, organizational logic um so what i notice is uh, a lot of my phrase leaders and pioneers of change uh, have very similar challenges uh, so I, I convene often around dinner tables, people leading change and, uh, and facilitate conversations between those leaders. And for me, there's a lot that you can achieve by building, you know, peer to peer dialogue, peer support community, because typically um, these are often quite, if they're in large organizations, they're often quite isolated individuals who may feel they don't really have a peer group in their own organization. If you connect them with the equivalent individuals in other organizations, suddenly it's like they find their tribe and suddenly they have these moments of realizing, oh, okay, it isn't me that's failing. This is like everybody in my position is having exactly the same yeah. challenges and there's just a huge amount of um, sort of energy that people can get just through that, sheer, that, that process of connecting with each other. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that is, you know, certainly my experience is that that experience of isolation where, it, you know, it, people who are ready to enact change and who have some agency and desire are often on the fringes of organizations. They're, yeah. they're almost there by mistake. They're the people that somehow got through the selection process that would normally have weeded them out. Um, uh, you know, and and uh, and have su survived that, and are quite people prepared to question and ask, isn't there a better way that we could do this? That that then get particularly isolated in organisations, and you know, I've been talking with um, uh, Laura Storm. I don't know if you know her, and we're thinking of putting a you know a, like a long term journey of groups of different people together just to have dialogue about those uh you know th those constant challenges which do come up which are you know you think are particularly peculiar to you and your organization but as you say charles they're you know they're 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 very common you know if i think about 
you know, each time you feel that you're seeing emergent coherence or collective intelligence breaking through, it sort of breaks down. There's some kind of unstable element that comes in to, to you know, to, to sort of stop it, whether it's, you know, almost, uh, you know, like you, you see groups of incredibly wealthy people convening together to talk about how to stop climate change and whether that's a good or a bad thing, suddenly the entire dialogue is hijacked by the Me Too dialogue. And, you know, I, I've kind of been in com group, large group conversations around a particular subject where another dynamic will suddenly emerge and totally derail the entire conversation and take it off in a new direction, which, which undermines the kind of emergent collective intelligence. And, you know, I think people who experience those kinds of dynamics need to be with other people that are in similar, having similar experiences to say, well, you know, how did that happen? How did, how did our movement, how did our, you know, a bit like the Labour Party in a way, although that's another story, how did we get so derailed by the, by, by what I call the undertow that, that mm. keeps pull us, pulling us back towards old structures? Mm. Sorry, I've hijacked my own conversation now. I've gone off. <laughs> well, yeah, no, but definitely, I think within organisations, I mean, certainly finding ways to convene peer groups of um, leaders at different levels who are kind of aspiring towards a sort of similar goal, but but creating that space that's safe for them to just get to know each other as human beings. You know, I think, Charles, what you're doing sounds really fantastic. Um, I think at She Leads Change and certainly in a few other organizations that I'm involved in, including um, the Finance Innovation Lab here in the UK, again, it's, it's a very similar thing, you know, not necessarily for, uh, for the ones I'm involved in, uh, kind of within the organization, but a kind of cross-organization, like a community, you know, what we're trying to create is a community where um, in the case of the Finance Innovation Lab, there are entrepreneurs working in all, you know, all a, a huge number of different mainstream finance organizations trying to create change intrapreneurially in their organizations. And as you can imagine, finding it incredibly a lonely type of, uh, a lonely place for someone like them to be in. And us creating a community for them to, to feel safe, to, to be able to hear themselves, hear each other, and just, you know, not necessarily even go into big strategies or, or, or you know, for how to transform finance, but just even the conversations of mental models of what is it like to work in finance? What, how can we be working in finance? Slowly shifting those mental models and for them to find normalcy in that, I think is, is, actually a, a valid part of of how we we make this mm. how we scale this you know and, and we do something yeah. similar as well at she needs change yeah and and yeah. what do you find that are these constant you know we talked about charles the the sort of there are similar challenges that emerge all the time what are those sort of things that you're seeing you know i i see the kind of uh, the high, what I call the hijack model emerging 
often in organizations, but what other things are you seeing that, you know, that put the brakes on collective emergence? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of think uh, the classic example is somebody in a sustainability department of a large corporate who's trying to move a massive beast and, and it's, it's all fairly standard stuff. It's, it's around framing, finding internal champions, finding allies. Um, you know, you need to have a long-term vision, but you also need to deliver short-term success. You need to kind of work systemically and collaboratively, but also recognize that your organization wants stories to show how great you are. Um, I think the really leading organizations have got beyond that and they realize they people organizations like Unilever and Mars, you know, really consciously use their convening power to convene across their sector. They're always thinking about how can we work with our peer group? How can we work with our, our value chain? How can we work with governments, partners, civil society? And they see themselves as catalysts. But most of the sort of pack behind that, um, people in the sustainability department may, may understand the the need for that, but they work for people who want the sexy story basically, and they want it, you know, in time for the annual report, and they want it, you know, this year, not next year. So if you're, it, it requires quite a lot of sophistication to be able to manage those multiple different agendas and timeframes. And a, a lot of the good sustainability people are, you know, they're systems thinkers. They're not overly identified with their organization. They're seeing the bigger picture, their peer group, their tribe really is, is, a, is a tribe of global change makers, but they have to kind of go undercover in, in an organization. They have to carry a, 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 a business card with a logo and sort of pretend affiliation to that logo and play that game simultaneously. And that itself takes quite a lot of emotional resilience to kind of yeah. keep your brand uh, marketing department happy while you're busy actually trying to disrupt the entire business model of your organization. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and what, it, what is the space for those, for those people? I mean, outside of large organizations i mean you know i i noticed there's an interesting question in the chat here um, and we'll i think as we're coming to the top of the hour we'll start to ask see if there are some people that want to come on but there's a, an interesting question in here is are we making the mistake of thinking the answers can come from large organizations and um, from esme are place communities and young communities of gig workers for example more able to build the alternative i think that's a really interesting question is you know is 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 allowing collective and intelligence and leadership to come through in large organisations too hard to do? What do uh, I mean, I've worked at both ends of the spectrum because I used to work in venture mm -hmm. capital. I worked with a lot of startups. Mm -hmm. I've worked with uh, had a consulting company working with mission driven businesses. And there's a wonderful kind of ideological purity you can have at that end of the spectrum. Um, and uh, the, the problem is you're not necessarily shifting the whole system. When you go to the other end of the spectrum, uh, you have the power to shift the system, but uh, you, you, you still struggle to do it because of, of institutional inertia. So I think ideally mm. you want a combination of those. And that's, you know, that's what smart, uh, smart conveners do, smart facilitators yeah. do, is convene uh, you know, the people with institutional muscle 
um, but also the the innovators, you know, design processes, building from you know open innovation, crowdsourcing, hackathons, etc. And that's where mm. for me the most interesting change happens. Uh, there's a great there's a great program that is a combination between uh, a collaboration between Nike, USAID, and yeah. NASA, and they run this annual thing called Launch, uh, which is you know, combines subject matter expert knowledge, crowdsourcing, uh, prize-driven innovation, accelerator models, and you're bringing kind of the best of all worlds into into a well-designed process. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it, in a way that it kind of, re, that sort of thing almost reminds me of, and I've never been and I'd like to go, the Ridwan School. Um, of you know bringing people together on a journey across and, and and in in a completely different way also the current emergence of things like um citizens assemblies which you know is just bringing multiple diversity together in a room on a process of inquiry about how to solve complex challenges together and i i think that more and more of these type of things at all sorts of different levels of society and not just business are starting to emerge. Um, so no, I'll, I'll comment okay. to Jenny about a change within my work organization and uh, it's really interesting Charles. We spent the last three years actually disrupting, we're a sales and marketing organization and we had a small project of 15 international salespeople and we actually managed the change internally um, and we had the result of increasing sales and gross margins as we'd expect from a commercial point of view. And that's been a great success, but trying to replicate that across the bigger system, 3,000 people globally is where we're at, and that's quite an interesting pivot point. So we've, we've proved that the systemic change is worthwhile. It adds value, but the fear at the top of the global organization is shutting down it replicating. So it's, yeah. so I'm, so it's a really interesting stage that we're at of that growth. Mm. Yeah, and that is that kind of undertow coming down in this your particular case from above. Psychological pulling back to what we know, what we're used to, rather than um, managing the um, managing the uh, uncertainty with allowing emergence and letting go to happen. Absolutely. And I think what's really interesting is that with it being a very, you know, we are a sales business, so it's all about the metrics. Mm -hmm. So despite the evidence of met improved metrics, they're still not accepting the change. It's still rejecting this. The system's still saying no. And I mm. think that's a really interesting pivot point that we're at. Mm. I mean, I'm in a situation where I'm in a team uh, in the UN development program where, you know, the, the stuff we do is so countercultural to the rest of the organization. Uh, you know, we're all we're all touchy feely into sort of we start calls with a with a kind of mindfulness meditation. Today we had a conversation about a vision for the project, and I did a guided visualization, and then I had people draw images and symbols at the end of it. Uh, and here's mine, which is is a heart, and it says partnership, love, connection, trust, relationship. I mean, I'd probably get fired uh, if if you know the rest of the organisation knew we were doing that stuff. And the question for us as a team within UNDP is, is do we attempt to, uh, do we attempt to change the big organization, um, you know, or do we just carry on with our own little way of doing things? Or do we, 
uh, or do we sort of infect the rest of the organization? So we, what we do sometimes mm -hmm. is, is we have allies from other uh, units come and, ex and experience what we do. So we had, a, we had a strategy retreat for a week in Costa Rica uh, and we had somebody from another team come um, and she just loved the whole thing so much. She's now gone back as like an ally back into her own team. So, you know, there's a possibility of kind of planting our uh, sort of agents around the organization, that sort of thing. <laughs> and, and I think that's a I really also really love... way to approach it. Sorry. It, it's that kind of sowing seeds is, it feels very um, organic, nature-based way of, you know, if, if that's how nature works, it can't actually be that, it can't actually be that wrong, that kind of approach to, you know, to sow seeds across an organization and see what sprouts. And, you know, if, if it's anything like my garden, nothing sprouts, but, um, you know, you have to kind of let those seeds fly and see what happens without ha having any attachment to the outcome in a way, perhaps. Mm. Um, and I was just going to add and say, I, I love linked to, to your example, Charles, I just love um, a term that uh, some of the folks I know at the International uh, Futures Forum use um, called creative transgressions and this idea of how, how can we, how can we make creative little disruptions to the usual way the usual pattern in how in, in 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 the way our systems tend to operate you know and it could simply be at the next sales meeting perhaps with some of your senior management gary like is there one little creative transgression instead of the metrics is there a different story to tell or something to just break the mold of how they would expect you to show up and, and run your presentation and, and, and just to allow, I guess, new thinking to, to enter the room and, and to have a place in the room. Something creative, even playful. <laughs> I, I think, you know, that there's a really interesting point in there, Jack, and, and I think also Charles, and, and I'm sure Gary, you've alluded to, which is about having the confidence to be able to make that creative transgression is not available to everybody and not uh, not available in every organization to do so you know it, it, it is like that finding the cracks where the water can get through and and learning mm. to spot the opportunity where there might be a chance to sow that seed or put that creative transgression in place. And, and you actually never know. I, one of the things I've kind of learned in when I, where, you know, when I do spend time on social media and I think, what on earth am I doing here? Is that actually you never know what, you're, what seeds you're sowing, where they're going to land. And you know, a year later, I'll have a conversation with somebody out of the blue in an organization who says, who will say, hey, you know, I, I remember what you wrote about X subjects and I will have had no idea that that seed had taken off. And I think there's something about having trust in the collective to emerge as well as doing what you can to help it on its way, maybe. That's really helpful, thank you. Well, I think just, just, just for the, everyone else that's viewing, what might be interesting is that the last three, literally last three or four weeks, 
we've now got two of the new managing directors who are, don't want to use age, but they are younger. They are not from the old system long term since the last two or three years. And they're now stepping into senior roles. And it's, you can feel the energy shift. You can literally mm. feel the conversation changing. And they seem to be stepping into their courage and going, okay, I'm okay to have this conversation. So it's very early, but I can sense some of the mm. things you're speaking to. Those, mm. yeah, there's a few advocates mm. starting to show up. That's so fantastic. I um, recently realized that, you know, I spent a lot of time critiquing everything that's wrong with the current system and why things, why systems change programs won't work. And, you know, that I could create such an awesome systems change program if only everybody would do what I tell them to do. And uh, I, what I eventually came to realize, and it's a fairly basic thing, uh, is that, you know, the world is the way it is. Uh, there is no sort of utopian version in which everybody is, is wise and wants to do things my way. So the messiness of it, the complexity of it, the fact that funders don't get it, the fact that people don't pay attention in meetings or don't show up or there's no continuity of, of participation. This is just a description of the way the world is. Um, and so I got really interested in the notion of micro interventions. You know, while you can create um, if in the right situation, you can create amazing, massive global systems change programs those opportunities are few and far between. Much more relevant is the day-to-day -day stuff that we all deal with. And so to your, to, to you know, that we talked about creative interventions, I, I talk about micro interventions. It's just like, well, what's the smallest thing that I can do to make a change? And I, and I think there are some very small things you can do in meetings that are potentially very impactful, as simple as, you know, if in the right environment, take 30 seconds to arrive. Let's just have, you know, if, you know, some people just think it's weird, so I wouldn't do it with that. But, you know, can, can we just take a couple of breaths together? Could we just hear a sentence from everybody? You know, how are you? What's going on for you? Or after somebody's given a presentation, instead of going to a Q&A, just say, okay, just turn to talk to a neighbor for for two minutes and have a conversation or just everybody jot down on a post-it note what questions are coming up for you and these are very very small and very safe and unthreatening interventions that actually actually can have a big impact on on the the kind of the dynamics and the effectiveness of meetings and groups uh, I, I couldn't i couldn't agree more on that um i think we've probably got time for just one more question i see one from Esme. Esme, I'm not sure whether you um, wanted to come on or not, so I'll read out your question, which is, can I ask how we think we can build this movement for change around more inquiry, less reductionist and more collaborative, you know, and build, building on, thank you for that, the inspiration to, tonight. So I'm going to pop that as our last question to you is, you know, how do we, how do we do that scale? Um, I, I think it was, it was just hearing the things that have been said about uh, how difficult this is and, um, and how much resilience and how much hard work it takes and also hearing, uh, um, you know, that we all, we all kind of want this, you know, we've participated in this, we, we want it and, and at the same time there aren't like a ton of examples out there that we can say, yeah, here's the, here's the manual, here's the best practice. 
because by its very nature we're experimenting we're learning it's mm -hmm. emergent and all that's been said about the political context at the moment you know just listening to the stuff in the uk you know, everyone wants answers as to why the labor party failed everyone loves the conservative party because it was a slick slogan and it and it got people through the overwhelming feeling uh, that we can't cope with the ambiguity around the political situation with Europe. Mm. You know, all, you've got all these kind of counter forces going on. And I, so I guess I'm just asking the question of feeling. So I, um, uh, I work for myself. I've worked with lots of different organizations and I know, you know, it, in itself, that's, that's, that presents challenges in terms of um, uh, connecting to people and amplifying our stories about um you know uh, how this is working and i and i get to work with some amazing clients who are really up for this and do some great stuff and uh you know you can really feel the change and i've been there in organizations where and my phrase that comes to mind is the kind of the immune system response you know the, yeah. the system just yeah. kills it just kills what you're trying to do mm. so so sorry with that long ramble i'm saying is what's what's you know, is there something from this conversation about how we how we build this together, um, or, or you know, is, so a provocation maybe is. You know, is there is there something here that we could do to keep connecting and keep amplifying? Yeah. And keep it? Um, uh, my quick response, uh, yeah, I'll point to Helena's uh, message in the chat. Uh, so for me, it's just uh, convening. Uh, convening yeah. conversations in in my team I convene a peer group so once a month we have like a four or five of us have like an action learning group and there's like three or four of those action learning groups we have this thing called a coffee chat where you get randomly paired with somebody in the team every month to build connections uh, and then I do a lot of convening of, of change agents uh, you know for just for dinner and I'm doing more and more of that. So it's just it's just creating the space for the conversation, the connection, the peer support, the peer inquiry. Uh, that's my approach. Yeah, and I think Helen has mentioned in the um, uh, chat here, working out loud, um, which Mara, obviously you are a part of too, which is a fantastic process. And you know, I, I think it is it, it is those small interventions, but those small groups, those small moments, and they don't have to be long. You know, we've we've got through chatting for an hour in the blink of an eye here, um, but that are you know designed around good inquiry questions that you know you can do twenty minutes on because you know everybody in organisations is under pressure of time, and it does take a bit of you know expertise. It does take a bit of skill. Um, but, but you know, you, you practice makes perfect. A fantastically rich conversation to start off 2020. Um, thank you to my guests, Jack and Charles. Um, thank you um, for coming on, Esme and Gary. It's always great to have people, you know, who kind of want to come on and carry on the chat. Thank you, everybody who's joined us and those of you who uh, will be listening to this amazing recording. And I think this is a... This is a conversation we'll come back to. Um, thank you very much. And once again, um, wishing everybody a fantastic 2020, um, uh, full of conversations, full of connection, um, um, and see you again in February. Thanks very much, everyone.